This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. So welcome, folks. Dr. Charles Parker here one more time at Core Brain Journal, and we have a very deep, enlightening guide here that's going to tell us some information. He's going to use words that a lot of us, including myself, just don't know. I was talking to him about it. He's like, with the graduate education I've had, I should have a hint of what he's talking about. But quite honestly, I don't. And the good news, friends, he is a colleague friend of Dr. Daniel Schmachtenberger, the guy that was here on 084 on Core Brain Journal, a delightful conversation we had just published today. So the gentleman here is Zach Stein. Welcome, Zach. Zach, thanks for coming on board. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. So Zach is a very interesting guy. I'm going to read a little bit about him. We're going to be jealous immediately as I tell you where he is. He's in the snow up there in New England, but he is uh, an interesting guy, a New Englander with a doctorate from Harvard. He lives on a lake, get this, in the Berkshires with his wife. He's, he's kind of in the country. His interests are in social justice and education, more about that later, including specializations in developmental psychology and ethics. He studied philosophy and religion at Hampshire College, and then educational neuroscience, get that, that's a very interesting phrase, human development and the philosophy of education at Harvard University. While he was a student at Harvard, he co-founded what would become Lectica. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. Uh, Lectica. So Lectica. You were close. Lectica. Yes. A nonprofit dedicated to the research-based, justice-oriented reform of large-scale standardized testing in K-12, higher education, and business. We're going to hear something about social justice and education. So he has a book out called Get this, Social Justice and Education Measurement. So thanks again, Zach. Tell us a little bit about where you are right now, what you're doing, and how you took this path with social justice and education. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm what you call a high-achieving dyslexic. So oh, that's I, never, I never did well in school, right? Oh, that's interesting. And so from an early time, I was, I was God, you know, I was fortunate enough to have a mother who was a special educator. Mm -hmm. um, and so from an early time, I knew that my mind worked differently and that it was okay to not fit into school. Um, but in fact, school was, was still very difficult and I had to fit into school whether I liked it or not because you have, what are you going to do? <laughs> Drop out? <laughs> mm -hmm. so, so from an early age, I was reflective on schools as an institution and actually pursued music kind of outside of schools as a way to preserve my self-esteem, as it were. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, testing is at the heart, I believe, of what makes schools a potentially unjust institution. Oh, uh, oh I you see, mm -hmm. Yeah, so schooling, right? Schooling is, is potentially a beneficent, wonderful, consciousness-raising, culture-evolving institution. Um, but schooling can have a sharp edge and can box in and discriminate and categorize and oppress. And so there's, it's a double edge. It's what the great philosopher Roy Bhaskar called a contradictory. Schooling is contradictory. It's both potentially good 
and potentially bad. And when it goes wrong, testing in the history of testing, at least in America, has been a big part of, of that. Testing is, is the sharp end of the stick, as it were, when it comes to a lot of, of educational policy and practice. So as a dyslexic, I experienced that firsthand, having to take the SAT, you know, to, uh, to get into college and just be miserable test taker. And the accommodation was, well, you can have an untimed test. And I don't want to spend six hours taking it. I'm terrible at it, whether it's six hours or, you know, uh, two hours. And uh, it was, uh, so anyway, there's a bunch of those, you know, stories about the miserable dyslexic. Uh, but, the, but the better story is this story about uh, Hampshire College, which didn't even care about my SAT. So I went to a very weird college with no tests and no grades, and I built my own curriculum. And, and, uh, and during that time, I met a developmental psychologist and psychometrician, Dr. Theo Dawson. And she's, uh, she was really doing groundbreaking work in kind of changing the way we think about educational assessment from a static IQ model to a dynamic developmental model. Uh, and as soon as I met her, I, I like was instantly caught up in the wake of her research and, and, uh, and kind of genius. And it, it led to Lectica, which is eventually to Lectica, which is a nonprofit that operationalizes this psychometric technology. Oh my gosh. Um, and it's you know, so interesting. Yeah, so, and that was a whole decade of my life was from about 21 to, you know, 30. Uh, I was working nose to the grindstone electrica, and it was that work that got me into Harvard under Kurt Fisher, who founded the Mind-Brain Education Department, um, and this is that educational neuroscience. So I did a master's degree with Kurt and then stayed on to do a doctorate, um, and I flipped in the doctorate to deepen the philosophy. Um, in part because I saw the neurosciences as kind of in disarray and the deeper issues being philosophical. <laughs> and, and, and the work with Lectica led me to see that the political economy of the testing industry was deeply entrenched. And although we had the better technology um, and the better science, uh, there was incredible inertia. And uh, so that's a... So, for example, we were in Texas, and I'm not going to name the locale, but we were doing pretty high-level work with the K-12 Council for a whole region. And we were potentially going to replace their kind of outmoded standardized test with our more sophisticated standardized test. And on the K-12 Council, the real estate representative stood up. So first think about that, the kind of policy-making decision <laughs> body for a whole way there's a real estate yeah. representative. It's political. Yeah, and she says, she says. You know, if you change the test, right, and we then real estate values could fluctuate unpredictably, right? And nobody wants that. So, and this is true, right? So, the way you rank an educational system is determined by the test. The rank of the educational system determines the home price. You know, same house, same material, same yard. Move it over that line into the better school district, and it's a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars more. And she didn't want to be able to look at a real estate market, <laughs> you know. So anyway, so you're seeing how the numbers that the tests create. That is and so you, terribly interesting. What a very interesting oversight that is. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So 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 anyway, so that was this was Lectica moving into the nonprofit, and uh, you know I. I wrote the dissertation on standardized testing and social justice and this is the book that you mentioned which we can talk about later and then now I'm on the I chair an education program at Meridian University 
Um, and we're looking to expand this program to address exactly some of these issues about social justice and, uh, and education. Well, still as an innocent, I, I have to ask you this next question at the, at the risk of sounding really pretty stupid, but I'm going to ask you anyway. So how does social justice then apply to this very interesting perspective that you just shared with us? I got the economic piece. And I do think I understand a little bit about the social justice piece, but could you please elaborate on that so we could understand a little bit better? Yeah, so justice, so think about justice as, uh, as kind of an archetype, right? So what's that statue in front of the courtroom? It is the blindfolded figure with a sword and a scale of measurement, right? And so this is very significant. This, the scale or the measurement instrument and the idea of justice are related through civilization back to ancient times, such that uh, when you look at the Bible, <laughs> you know, uh, an unjust measure is an abomination to the Lord, right? This is Proverbs. So the idea of a shared instrument that makes trustworthy discriminations, right? And an instrument that allows us to establish trust at a distance, to go to the market and know that regardless of if I have this weird beard or you have strange skin color, that you know the measure is true. So justice is about the fairness of lots, right? Justice is about are we fairly kind of distributing what's available? Mm -hmm. uh, are, are like cases treated like are <laughs> you, know, you know so you can go on and on but basically it's about equity it's about fairness mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and in many instances to get a fair institution you need a good measure um, and you'd be uh, probably not surprised to know how many basic issues in constitutional law and uh, other kind of uh, especially economics and kind of regulatory bodies and bodies that, you know, kind of enforce standards, you know, measurement is intrinsically related to legal systems and intrinsically related to scientific practice. Mm. So measurement is this kind of water we swim in and we too often take for granted because so many of our measures are so good. Like, you know, you go to the gas station, you put the pump in your car, you don't suspect that you're not actually getting a gallon when it says you got a gallon. You know? And if you actually look on the gas pump, you'll see the state that you live in has certified that pump as giving you a gallon. So, and there's a long, contested, politicized, violent history that led us to have measures we can rely on in that way. <laughs> this is the metric mm -hmm. system. This is the metric system and the French Revolution and modernity. A whole revolution in consciousness gave us this kind of infrastructure of trustworthy measurement. Um, wow. And that's true, it is true in the physical world to a large extent. Now, in the fringes of the sciences, measures are still being created. But in education and in psychology, we prematurely locked in a measurement infrastructure as if we had already figured it out, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, named specifically with the IQ test. Um, and uh, I could speak for the rest of the time about the history of the IQ testing movement, and there's a whole chapter on it in this book, Educational and uh, uh, social justice and educational measurement. But the point is that um, we don't have the reliable infrastructure for measuring the mind that we do for measuring so much of the physical world. And yet we proceed as if we do, 
in psychiatry and education and other fields of social service where measuring the mind seems so important, both for administering justice and for diagnostics. So I look at the way measures are institutionalized in school systems um, and uh, give a series of case studies to show basically that uh, more often than not, the testing infrastructures have been quite, uh, quite unjust, even though they've been even though they've been institutionalized in the name of justice. So again, we see this contradictory thing. Let me ask you a question, because this is terribly mm -hmm. interesting, and the way you're expressing it is, is so very interesting. Uh, is the reason, th is it the complexity and the advancement of complexity that uh, diminishes the effectiveness of the testing protocols? Or what, what's the reason that, that it isn't um, uh, predictably accurate? Yeah, so there's so many reasons that a, a testing infrastructure can be unjust, right? And sometimes accuracy is a part of it, right? So sometimes it's about the fact that the instrument itself is unreliable, right? Mm -hmm. That's a basic term, basic term in psychometrics, reliability, right? Mm -hmm. So like, you know, rewind to the earliest standardized tests on Ellis Island, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, were, they were administered in English, whether or not you spoke English. <laughs> Basic, <laughs> right, yes. Right, right, yeah, so therefore, <laughs> they were not reliable. And you're sending people away with a pretense of objectivity, right? Uh, with a pretense of reliability and pretending this is a scientific, almost epidemiological decision about kind of race, clean, basically race cleansing. <laughs> uh, and, and so it's how science is, you know, science is becoming a kind of uh, you know, aid to injustice and an instrument of ideology. Uh, and so, yes, accuracy is a part of it, but you can have a really accurate tool, such as the SAT. The SAT is very accurate. This isn't about objectivity and reliability with the SAT. This is about the role it plays in a zero-sum competition-oriented education system. So here it's not the objectivity. Here it's a deeper dimension about the role the instrument plays in the broader system. And that's more about concerns about validity. Um, so meritocracy has been the driving motive behind institutionalizing large-scale standardized testing recently. Um, the SAT is the meritocracy of the individual established after the Second World War. You know, the people who built the SAT also built the atomic bomb. Uh, same group. Same, the same <laughs> cold, thinking process. Of, of cold warriors, yes. Mm -hmm. um, and then so... And then No Child Left Behind was a meritocracy of schools, right? So they, they had a school level, <laughs> mm -hmm. district level testing, which was still about a competition, kind of race to the top kind of view of the testing. So they're irrespective of objectivity and reliability, although there are huge issues, <laughs> irrespective of that, there's still this issue of what's the function of the test in the institution? And are you creating a liberating structure or one that is, you know, advantaging the most advantaged more and disadvantaging the least advantaged, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So the idea, the idea of the SAT is that the better you do in the SAT, the more reward you get, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, but, but some forms of testing, the better you do, they're like, oh, you're doing fine. <laughs> if you're not doing well, we give you attention. <laughs> yes, right, right. Uh, it's, it's a diagnostic. It's, it's, to, it's to show us how to aid those people who are who need it most. And this is the idea of Lectica, is to have a diagnostic tool, not for ranking and sorting and creating a meritocracy, 
but for more justly distributing attention to the ones who are really struggling. Um, wow. uh, and there, there's other dimensions of, of why it's valuable, but I, but so yeah, so there, you're right, that accuracy objectivity is huge. And for a long time, that was the issue and still is in many contexts. But even if it's a good measure, even if the test is great, you can still use it for, for the wrong reasons. Um, so there's these multiple dimensions of justice. Uh, and again, the, the basic issue with justice is, are we treating people fairly? And it's, it's that simple, and we can we can deepen that, but but I like to start there with just justice. That is a very very interesting point. The way you're talking about it, it's just uh, it's it's exceedingly enlightening. The question for me, as an innocent here, is what could be the application of renovations? What would be the outcome of renovations, uh, separate and distinct from uh, property values? You know where where. where what, how, how does it, I can see right off the bat that it's going to be better for the individual because what you're saying is we're going to be much more understanding of human beings where they live and breathe as opposed to having uh, archetypical responses and categorizations and inaccurate labels that don't really, don't manifest the dynamic of the person. I think the word you used was a very important one, the, the dynamic and developmental testing. Uh, where you in insert the concept of time as opposed to, you know, time is a, is a very big, a big concept uh, outside of labels, you know, so, so where are we going with that? I'd be interested in your response to that. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many implications, right? And the, the, so again, the, the metric system in the French Revolution, right? The implication of changing a basic measurement structure uh, is is paradigm shifting, um, right? This is one of the things Thomas Kuhn wrote about when he talked about, you know, paradigmatic revolutions. Yeah. One of the things that's one of the things that kind of changes is the basic, what counts as reality, <laughs> like mm -hmm. what counts as what counts as real, um, and so, as you just mentioned, time. Uh, is often neglected in psychological measurement, right? So IQ, technically speaking, is not supposed to really be a, a kind of function of time per se. It's this intrinsic thing, especially if you hold it rather crudely. Um, ideally, for a complex system like the human mind, uh, you should be taking multiple measures over multiple time scales <laughs> and then looking at the dynamic patterns of variability and looking for trends, trends in behavior and trends uh, uh, in learning. And this is what Kurt Fisher did uh, uh, at the Stanford Institute for Behavioral Studies uh, with a couple dynamic systems modelers from the Netherlands, including Paul van Geert. He, for the first time, realized, realized kind of Piaget's dream of looking at the mind as, a, as an ecosystem or the mind as a very complex organism of interconnected, almost independently growing skills and capacities. So that very different from a computer with a single central processor, <laughs> you have the metaphor of an ecosystem um, with these kind of evolving different skill sets uh, with different, you know, uh, competitions and co-support systems and symbioses. And so he created a paradigm for kind of tracking human behavior and looking at it on flowing, uh, kind of a flowing dynamical basis. So imagine instead of a teacher getting one standardized test score that's super high stakes, you're getting dozens and dozens of embedded kind of 
formative assessments that disappear into the curriculum. The student doesn't even know they're taking an assessment, wow. <laughs> right? But they're getting assessed multiple times. And they get this kind of dashboard of a kind of growth chart for each student so that you get, instead of a box, a portrait of uniqueness, which can be mirrored back to the student as an aspirational portrait, uh, as a developmental kind of, you know, uh, ladder to be climbed, as it were. So there's a whole other way of viewing schooling. And when you start to see the, the actual variability in students, right, when you start to open up the space of assessment to see uniqueness instead of to get uniqueness out of the way, you start to see that things like grades and age-normed classrooms are a relic of an outmoded era. <laughs> and, we, and we need a very different form of schooling. Um, but we do need a different form of measurement to have them. So like the de-schooling and the homeschooling and the, these are interesting and important in our reaction against, I think, what's a failing school system. But until we get an alternative measurement system that allows us to see uniqueness and make real diagnostics, because um, some students do need extra support, right? <laughs> some, com some communities do need diversity of, of perspective and culture. Um, so we need to be able to see that. Um, but I'm seeing a future 10 to 15 years from now um, that's very different in terms of what is a standard, you know, it doesn't look like a classroom. It doesn't look like what, what we've thought of as a school. That is so interesting. You know, uh, you mentioned Thomas Kuhn, and for our listeners, uh, Zach was talking about the structure of scientific revolutions. And, and uh, you know, one of my old favorite books, because what happens is, and, and yeah, we talked, um, about, I mean, paradigm shift is almost a ubiquitous term in this situation, but I think the issue is that it's a dynamic paradigm shift. Is this what you're saying as opposed to, boom, you're in another place. You're in multiple different places. And, and <laughs> the, the elegance of that whole situation then gets over into the issue which you were alluding to a little bit was the, re the recipient group, the people who uh, would be the, the individual's who would have to do something with that information, whether they are in fact prepared to, to uh, right. identify it and, and synchronize with it themselves, because you can do all the testing in the world. If the group can't tolerate it, it's a real estate value again. <laughs> yeah, no, this is exactly right. And so once you're beyond the simple issue of reliability, like once you have a good test and you know it works and you're reliably differentially sorting people, blah, 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 once you have a good test, the way you take that next step of justice is to ask the question of, can the way this test is used be agreed to, right, be consented to by the people most affected by it, right? Which is to say, if you were to ask the teachers and the students, is this test great for you? Like, are you getting something from this? Is this working for you? Like, is it benefiting your learning? Is it helping the classroom work better? Is it helping your life? Like, you ask them that on a daily basis about the test and see what they say. Uh, and this is, again, where justice and democracy are related, right? Uh, most of the testing infrastructures are unilaterally imposed upon teachers and students. And teachers and students derive very little direct benefit from the testing experience, let alone the results of the tests. So, again, the design principles for Oblectica have long been to put teacher and student first and to have a kind of learning-centric way of having the test experience and the feed you know the feedback you know the feedback of the test so and this is very different 
you know, uh, you still get on the back end all the numbers you need as an administrator, <laughs> you know, to, to, to do your accountability statistics. Mm -hmm. But uh, the front end experience of the student and teacher is profoundly, it's actually flipped, it's profoundly different. The test itself is a learning tool and experience. And again, this is an element of, of, uh, of design that's, that, that's important uh, for educational futures. You know? Yeah, the test is, I mean, I'm oversimplifying it. I mean, the way you're saying it is so interesting, and, and I hate to use the word elegant again, but that's your, the way you're speaking it is so uh, wonderful and interesting. But the issue is you're really having a communication as opposed to a segregation. You're, you're developing a dialogue with, who, with all individuals that would cause the test providers to evolve on some level as the testees, if you will. So that what happens is that there's a, a conversation that enlarges the entire group. Yes, that's precisely it. Yeah, yeah, that, right. that's that's wonderful articulation, and it's uh, you know it's a great it's a great vision, and but it's easier you know, easier said than done. Yeah. And so you know, I stepped back to write the book to look at the history of testing and to essentially kind of evaluate the prospects for for educational futures in, in light of that that history. Um, and uh, we're at an interesting turning point in the history of, of education precisely because we're moving towards privatization and an increasing diversification of educational offerings. So we're seeing, I believe, the dismantling of the large kind of state-run public school. Oh, yeah. And a kind of replacement with a more diversified offering of uh, commercial uh, ventures. Um, and... Um, I'm just saying this objectively. I'm not taking a political stance now, <laughs> but this is this is what I see. This is what I see unfolding, uh -huh. and so that's again when the marketplaces open up. Historically, measurement infrastructures come along because how can you tell one thing is better than another thing <laughs> if you can't put something that's reliable next to it, like <laughs> a scale or a measure or a ruler? So. And, uh, you know, this is similar with the Neurohacker Collective and the nutraceuticals and the kind of products that neurohackers use to increase their capacities. We only know that we're doing that if we have a reliable measurement tool. So, you know, psychometric innovation in the schools needs to be paralleled by psychometric innovation in the internet and app development uh, and so that the quantified selfers out there and the neurohackers out there who are tracking themselves are not just living in the, an illusion of numbers because uh, that's the risk of a measurement infrastructure that's not accurate. It's worse than flying blind, right? Because you're flying blind, you're just flying blind. Mm -hmm. it's, it's flying thinking you're seeing clearly with numbers and gauges and when you're not actually seeing clearly. <laughs> And that's this, and this has been the situation with the public schools in the, in the states for a long time. We've had a, a testing infrastructure that has been kind of, I think, misleading us in many ways about the state of the schools. Um, so, you know, it's it's interesting when you start to talk about measurement, uh, because again, at the water we swim and we take it for granted. But I think, for example, the IQ test should be done away with. It's such a cultural thing. But mm -hmm. like, and I'll take on almost anyone, <laughs> and I have, uh, but I think it's doing more harm than good. I think it's distorting our sense of ourselves and what the mind is capable of, um, let alone its long history of being tied into discriminatory practices, mm -hmm. uh, specifically the eugenics movement itself.
yes. was was instrumentally tied to the origin of the IQ test. Uh, I didn't know that. Oh yes, definitely. Sure. I mean, this is so. If you if you if you look at so so Binet in France invented it, um, and Binet was, I think. Uh, the, a beneficent inventor. He was tasked by the French government to create a tool that would allow them to identify the, most, the kids who needed the most attention, who couldn't just be put in a general classroom. So he invented the IQ test. It was imported to America, <clears throat> and uh, the multiple choice IQ test was invented in Vineland, New Jersey in 1917 by uh, Henry Goddard and a group of people preparing for World War I. And the whole idea here was essentially to find a way to organize army troops. Mm -hmm. Out of the World War I data, the Army Alpha and Beta, this is a story told um, uh, by uh, Stephen Jay Gould in a great book called The Mismeasure of Man. So if you want a deeper version here, look to Stephen Jay Gould's book. It was, uh, it's a wonderful book, um, very accessible. But it tells this whole story of how the early IQ testing movement in the United States and that Army Alpha and Beta data, which is to say the first large-scale IQ tests were used to perpetuate racist ideologies, um, mm. uh, leading right up to the birth of World War II. Right? And so the eugenics movement was an interdisciplinary, middle-class, international movement of scholars and intellectuals and, and philanthropists and social reformers who were using science, namely the IQ test, to keep immigrants out and to keep the schools clean, right? Um, and so there were thousands of African-American women sterilized in the South based more or less solely on an IQ test that deemed them to be below a certain level and therefore unfit to produce. Um, and so this is an example of a educational instrument, right? A, a test, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, uh, which is being used in a very blunt way to make. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so again, I believe the IQ test should be, uh, <laughs> should See, be replaced. You know, <laughs> you, met, pardon me for not, interrupting you because I yeah. just love listening to you talk, but I have two different things that are going on. Uh, one is uh, the value of what you're speaking about seems inarguable. It just seems so completely accurate and, and thoughtful and reasonable. Uh, so then the next thing after that is how, two questions. One is, uh, how young does one start with this? Because, uh, and by the way, just a quick aside, I have to tell you, this is why Daniel encouraged me to talk to you, because he and I were talking about this. You know, he's He's obviously into this very much, uh, and, and Daniel's the person over at NeuroHacker that we were talking about earlier, but uh, how, how young can you begin to measure some of these points that you're, you're talking about, and, and what would you recommend in that regard? Mm. You know, I think, well, there's a few things to say. One is that, you know, I think more important than any particular measurement tool or you know, how I, I think more important than a particular measurement tool is the way you teach children to relate to their own mind and to to its eval and and to the way it's evaluated by others, right? So so I you know there there are some interesting tools out there that people are beginning to use, you know, outside of schools with their kids. and and this can be good and bad. But I think you, 
increasingly children are subject to diagnostics of 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 all kinds, uh, both you know doctors and schools and psychologists and. And so I think more important than saying some of those measures are good and some of those measures are bad, which is very complicated. <laughs> uh, I think better than that is to have conversations with their children about the fact that no measure is you, right? Mm -hmm. That you, you, the name Zach, escapes all measurement. Um, and, and then if a particular measure bothers a child, uh, <laughs> you know, break it down. See if, it, see if it's wow. worth keeping them in that category or not wow. and i think we too often take them for granted and one of the worst things that can happen to the self-esteem of a child is a kind of measurement kind of educational measurement induced <laughs> yeah. kind of misunderstanding misunderstanding yeah. you know so and again this is what iq tests do mm -hmm. uh um, and this is what the SAT can do. I mean, in some schools, the SAT is this kind of fetishized object, and what's your <laughs> score, and this and that, and and, it, and you know, and it does predict, you know, the the college you may might get into, mm -hmm. but it doesn't predict it doesn't predict beyond that mm -hmm. very well, and it's actually negatively predictive of graduate school success in some contexts, which is to say, if you do good on the SAT, you're probably not going to succeed as a, you know, literature PhD or a philosophy PhD or something. Like that. So or as a human being. <laughs> or is it, <laughs> that's well, there there Ouch. So yeah, so so my point is to say that you know it's it's better to think about how to frame the test and to to give the child equipment and to to think of themselves outside of those evaluations, you know, and you know to separate learning from schooling. You know, schooling is this institution that's going to put these labels on you and these numbers and. But learning is different. Learning happens in all contexts and all, you know, at all times and, and potentially, you know, <laughs> the learning you do outside of school could be so much more important than the learning you do in school, which is what I had the, the benefit to experience as a dyslexic. I had to disinvest <laughs> to a certain extent. Just, you know. So again, I think those conversations are more important to have and to think about how to frame those than just looking for some some test that's going to be great for my kid, you know. And, Those are three uh, essential, beautiful points, very well stated. I mean, you know, it's just, uh, you think about kids, uh, how they form their view of themselves and and how the the grids that are put up against them don't really synchronize with their development as human beings. It's, it's just, we're putting you in a box and we're going to start putting you in a box and this is what we do. Yeah, no, totally. And and I think uniqueness, I mean, what Kurt Fisher's work in dynamic systems modeling taught me was that the snowflake principle applies just across the board. You know, that uh, that uniqueness is, is a deeper characteristic of the mind than almost any other. And so when I'm looking at a measurement tool, does it have enough moving pieces and variables to capture uniqueness? Or does it have actually a very limited set of categories? Which is to say that, like, if you put 20 people in a room, a bunch of them will be in the same category. <laughs> uh, that's not uniqueness, right? Um, now, electrical assessment, where you do a dozen assessments over the course of, let's say, two courses, each person of that 20 will have a totally unique developmental profile, right? So this is the difference, right? Because one test time where you generate nine categories and you know six people are in the same category versus a dozen short little tests embedded a test. We call them teasers, right? Uh, short test, you don't even know it's a test. 
So you get multiple data points over time. You can see the uniqueness of the individual emerge through the assessment instead of the assessment displacing the uniqueness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right, the, the assessment. Right. Uh, and so that's, that's the flip. So it's that deep. And teachers get this immediately. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, well, psychiatrists would yeah, too. I mean, yeah. I, th I think you've got a great market <laughs> right. uh, for, because I think what we mental health professionals do, and I have to be careful when I say psychiatrists because that group is very groupthink oriented and still completely wedded to the diagnostic manual, which is, uh, as you said, a relic. I mean, it's such a complete relic, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's a fashion show. And, oh, yeah. and it's not a good fashion DSM. show because it's a negative fashion yeah. show. Here's how we're going to pathologize you. And we've got you in this box and your, patho your pathology is this, as opposed to really a more functional, dynamic, time-oriented. What's your brain function in this context and how can you improve upon it? Or what would you like to do if you were going to do it differently? Is there a different way to do this in some constructive way? Because it sounds like it's counterproductive the way you're doing it. I mean, that's a whole different way of looking at a human being. And uh, a lot of people who are informed about human behavior are thinking that way, but the standard of care is the relic. And many people... Well, and this is, yes, and this is the issue, right? Same, right. same issue and in education. the legal system is tied up with it, and the legal system and the medical system, this is what you said earlier, now I'm finally grasping what you were talking about, because then you're going to get sued if you have a problem not calling the person by what everybody has agreed upon is that diagnosis. I mean, the, the quintessential example, there are two of them. One is ADHD, one of my favorite topics because it's so reductionistic. But the other one, which is the, the wastebasket term for humanity, is bipolar. I mean, <laughs> you know. Right. Right. If it moves, it's bipolar. I mean, you know, it's like, and and if, no, if it moves in this way, then that way. You know, yeah, right. It doesn't move consistently. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think it's, uh, and again, you know, measurement infrastructures are related to law, deeply, deeply related to law and to the regulation of human behavior through institutionalized relationships. So it's just, if you're going to have a healthcare system, if you're going to have a health insurance system. You're going to need some kind of system of measurement, you know. Um, so the first ones we've seen, I think, uh, have ultimately fallen short of the visions that they were institutionalized. You know, so even the IQ tests, these guys thought they were trying to administer democracy, right? They thought they were trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and similarly, the DSM, uh, you know, uh, when schizophrenics used to be thought to be possessed by spirits and yeah. you know the, the treatment of I mean you can tell that story uh, but I think today they are relics and I think this is a good term and so the deepest tension we have in many sectors education psychiatry healthcare is the disconnect between the state of our knowledge and the state of our institutional practice and this is the inertia largely of the measurement infrastructures and this is why some of the most radical work you can do in a field is the work to replace the basic infrastructure of measurement that characterizes the field so yes i could build a new school or work to change curriculum etc but changing the test seems to be the deeper fulcrum and similarly you know if you could dislodge the dsm <laughs> uh, from the center uh, 
So there's that sense of uh, finding that, that deeper kind of Archimedean point where the whole field can shift. And that this tends to be the measurement infrastructure. Um, you know, Howard Gardner, who I studied with, I had the fortune, you know, I was blessed to study with Howard at uh, in the theory of multiple intelligences is his. And he told me that the, you know, the theory of intelligence and the measurement of intelligence are the most politicized psychological topics, right? And I think that's a quite a little bit of an overstatement. But the idea is, at least when you have a meritocratic society, you know, at, all the resources and rewards follow those people who score highly on these things. Yep. Um, and so when you start to change these things, these tests, then the resources and rewards start to get distributed differently. <laughs> um, and that's deeply political issue because it's actually about the redistribution of wealth through the re-identification of actual human capacity. So instead of just doing well in the SAT because your daddy did well in the SAT and he paid for your SAT prep course and then you went to Harvard and then you become the investment banker who creates the financial crisis, right? By the way, the financial crisis was created by the guys who did best on all of these tests. Like, what does that tell you? Uh, so instead of rewards going this way, right, we can, we can funnel rewards and attention if it's need be following reality of the mind not some some demi reality or some some fiction of our of our mismeasurement um, and and the connectedness of us as human beings yeah what, precisely what you're saying is and and i and and i'm freely interpreting what you're saying you're saying so so well but what happens is these these measures the way they're structured is to divide us whether you what, depending on how you look at the division yeah and the division then occurs, uh, creates an isolation, because if you're yeah. not that person, then you're isolated by definition. And then as an isolated person, you're completely alone and thinking about mm. killing yourself because there's no one that really understands the fact that you have these other potentials and these other mm. thoughts that are constructive right. and, and these other attributes and, and skills that, right. that are just not in, on, the, yeah. on, the, on the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so, in, I mean, that's, and it's that sense of what is allowed to exist, you know, what, what's allowed to be real and, and the things we measure are get the validation, the consensus validation of what's real. But there's, there are so many human capacities and ways of being and emotional states that are beyond measure. And we need to, as a society, valorize the unmeasurable, you know, and, you know, one of the reasons we over-measure, we over-measure because we need to quantify in order to monetize, right? So commodification has a lot to do with the increasing of measurement. So the valorization of the unmeasurable is also the decommodification of human experience, right? And this has to do with, as you're saying, not being these isolated individuals, but instead embracing the uniqueness, right, um, of, of what's out there. And the divisive thing with measures is, again, ancient, you know. Uh, think about the, uh, this is one of my favorite things, and I'll stop. You know? No, no, uh, let's stop. You know, who makes the, you know, the, the ruler, right, the mm -hmm. king, the ruler, makes the ruler. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. just to say the very length. Very interesting. And, oh, and the foot, the foot, the very idea of the foot, of course, goes to the, to the king's foot. So it, so it used to be that the, it was the, the right of the aristocratic lord or the king to impose his measure upon 
the subject. You know, to be subject was actually to be subject to measure. So if it was a weird year, <laughs> the, uh, the, the lord of the land could say, oh, the bushel that I collect my taxes in, the bushel's bigger this year. Sorry, guys. <laughs> you know, um, and uh, so there's this way that political power and measurement is always related. And just to remind what I already said, you know, the measures in the schools, no child left behind. This is unilaterally imposed upon the teacher. So it's the same instance of, the, the, you know, the kind of worker to trying to <laughs> do their job, getting this imposition of measurement infrastructure over, over the top of their labor. Um, I can't help so it's an old about story. this other thing. I'd be interested to see what you think about mm, it. Please. Because Please. what's going on in psychiatry, um, you know, just as... You, you probably don't know this about me because you don't know me, but um, I spent four years doing SPECT imaging, single photon emission computed tomography, working with a guy in California who's a world authority on measuring brain function. Hmm. And one of the things that's really attractive and interesting about that is it takes the, it's a, it is a paradigm shift. And it shifted me a great deal and I appreciated working with him because it took us to a different level, closer to brain function. But the problem with that particular uh, protocol is that it still leaves a reductionistic view based on what it looks like it is from 10,000 feet as opposed to molecular physiology, which is far more dynamic and changing and has many more variables associated with it than holes on the cerebral cortex, which could be caused by hundreds of things. And so, but it's interesting because people are so enamored of finding something out about themselves. They spend thousands of dollars to take it to that next level, which I totally appreciate, really, because there's some value in it, as you said a moment ago. The DSM-5 has a value. It doesn't, it has, it well, doesn't have well, a negative. Well, that's the other thing is that, I mean, we want to be measured as much as we fear measurement. Mm -hmm. we, we, want to, we want to be measured uh, because then something real. Right. So, uh, you know, the, the reason that people like fMRIs more than, let's say, EEG data <laughs> mm -hmm. is because the fMRI seems to be a simpler case of measurement because it's spatial, it's spatial location. It's so like, true. Here, here it is. And so there's just instinctually, oh, the brain has been measured. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we would, we would love to be measured in that way. And similarly, like all the personality tests, the Myers-Briggs and the, you know, this variety, people love these these personality tests, you know, because as much as you don't want to be in a box, you also like being in a box <laughs> because there's other people in that box. And it's yeah, right. So, so again, um, I, I began with that idea that, that education is contradictory. Measurement is similarly contradictory. You know, it, it was appropriate. I, I took the Woodcock Johnson, which is a diagnostic for dyslexia and I was dyslexic and it was very appropriate for me to be diagnosed that diagnosed that way. Mm -hmm. You know, I was lucky enough to be in a school system to get special support. So that was a case of justice oriented testing with mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. where the test was used in a just way. Yeah. Um, I've, I've already given accounts of, you know, unjust testing yeah, uh -huh. yeah. That's, a, that's a very good uh, so, point but, thank you yeah so so but justice oriented testing is just as real and so there are certainly cases where a medical diagnostic or a brain scan or even perhaps at times and i'm gonna hate myself for saying this a dsm diagnosis yeah uh, is the kind of snapshot of objectivity that allows for the next right step to be taken yes. right so so there are these 
moments of objective measurement that are valuable and just. Um, but again, the, you know, it, I hate the, uh, the the online personality tests that everyone fetishizes these days. You know, and yeah. and uh, so I think that, that those are cases where maybe that's fun. But please don't take those seriously. Yeah, right. right. The, that's, the mind. That's, the that so is the epitome of your point right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Like the height of reductionism, you know. Yeah. Oh my God. And, and commodification. You know, yeah. Commodification. Right. 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 So, well, so just really, really, they're just selling you ads. Yeah. It's just thing. making money on the game. Uh, you know, one of the things you were saying, just as you were talking about it, because there is a interesting coalescence of issues that occur because a person does a brain scan, and I did this for many years. I still read brain scans much less frequently because it's only under certain circumstances. I think they're really uh, return on the value. But back to it, the diagnosis given on the report on the brain scan is, get this, a DSM-5 diagnosis. <laughs> well, I don't know if you knew excellent. that. Oh, huh? No, I didn't know that specifically. I but thought you'd get a kick it's out very, but, but yeah, it's very interesting. You know, the neuroscience is driven by psychological measurement more than neuroscientists want to admit, which is to say that, you know, as much as they want to say that mind doesn't exist or there's not consciousness, in fact, it's, it is categories we use to diagnose mental states that allow us to ground so much of the neuroscience research, you know. Um, so it's important not to forget that. If we change the psychological measures, like for example, think of how often the IQ test is used in neuroscience research. <laughs> it's a standard, you just throw in an IQ test. Yep. Uh, but imagine we threw in some dynamic developmental assessments. Um, uh, the way we think about the brain itself would change. Again, throw time in, right? Mm -hmm. Let's do longitudinal neuroscience research. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. God, God forbid, let's do neuroscience research on people with right hand, you know, excuse me, non-right hand dominant people. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like neurodiversity is one of the things that I was harping on as a graduate student. And uh, so I started to pick up these cases of radical neurodiversity. One of my one of my close colleagues, Mary Helen Imordino Yang, I'm not sure if you know her. She works with Antonio Damasio, and she did research on these two boys who had they'd had hemispherectomies, right? So they'd had severe epilepsy. One had his right hemisphere removed, the other had his left hemisphere removed, and she worked with these boys for over a decade, um, and it was just so striking, a case of uh, basically the the adapt the 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 reconstructive power of the human brain. So this this one boy had had his speech center had been removed. Mm. <laughs> like they took it out, <laughs> and it took some time. But months later, he was speaking, and now he speaks. You could tell there's something maybe a little off, but he's still speaking without a speech center, right? So, so again, when we're thinking about what is the brain and how does it work, uh, you know, her work just blew my eyes wide open about how little we know. You know, and um, so there's uh, Antonio Batro wrote a book called Half a Brain is Enough. And that's where you can find those boys documented. Um, and then Mary Helen works at the Center for Brain and Creativity at Southern California with Antonio Damasio. This is wonderful work. Um, but this is that whenever someone tries to get all excited with the slide with the fMRI and they've located the spot where something happens, <laughs> I tend to tell them, oh, yeah, well, I knew a kid who had his language center removed and ended up speaking. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> what does that, you know, what does that it's, mean? It's, it's amazing. It's really amazing, the power of uh, the power of the mind, the power of the brain to 
to actually move forward like the, the, neuro, the neuroplasticity. You know, uh, I really regret that we have to bring this to a close. I'm going to tell you a funny thing, though. You'll get a kick out of this because I'm, I'm having this problem with myself talking to you. And, and, and one of the problems I'm having is as I get the show notes together, I'm thinking of what I want to do is put these little links in there so a person can pop to the remark and get the remark. And I'm having this thing of there's no way I could do it, you know, because you saw me, you could see me writing down stuff. And I was like, oh, God, that's another interesting thing. People are going to love that point. And uh, but you've had so many really interesting, delightful points. I'm just going to be I'm going to have a lot of time getting it together, but it's not going to be three or four points. I can tell you that because just even that last couple of statements were very, very interesting and. I can't uh, tell you how much well, I appreciate talking to you, Zach. It's great. Go ahead. What are you going to say? Uh, it's a pleasure to be uh, to be. In, I felt like I could let my philosophical hair down, as it were, <laughs> and just kind of just kind of let it out. So, so I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun, and uh, it's good to uh, to be speaking with such an advanced practitioner who is appreciating this this paradigm shift that we're in the midst of. Uh, if I can put it that simply. Well, you're you're uh, any way I can help you out, I'd be happy to help you out because. You're on the right path. You're younger than I am, and uh, you know, if you have another idea, like when your next book comes out, let me know because we'll jump on it and do it, and we'll Great. do what we can I, to get I, this one out there because your message needs to be heard. It's a very deep, profound message, and you say it in such an engaging, pleasant way. I mean, who can who cannot pay attention to it? So, thank you very much. Thank you, Chuck. Thanks for listening to Core Brain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.